0: Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. So Sunday night was a rough night for Chris Paul and the Chris Paul Army. I mean, it just was really, really rough. The point God turned in a God-awful Game 7, and he got humiliated and wrecked at home. And do you know who was enjoying the hell out of it? Do you know who ate that up? You know who had more fun with that than anybody else? Of course, Patrick Beverly. He was eating it up during the game, and he was still pounding Haterade the next day. And as much as the Chris Paul army loves Chris Paul, that's how much Pat Bev hates him. He hates Chris Paul. He hates Chris Paul with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. And when Pat Bev got the chance yesterday on ESPN, he went in on Chris Paul.
1: Man, CP can't guard nobody, man. Everybody in the NBA know that. What do we call a Cone. You know what you do with cones? Like when in the summertime, you got a cone. You make a move. What does the cone do? Stay still. Exactly. Yeah. He's a cone. Everyone knows that. It's just y'all don't want to accept it.
0: Credit ESPN. Get up. Calling Chris Paul a cone, a traffic cone is actually funny. It's hilarious. And there's no doubt the Mavs were hunting him in Game 7. That was the most he had ever been hunted in his career. And the 37-year-old Cone could not do anything about it. Dallas was feasting on him, and that old stiff was helpless. But if you think Pat Bev was done going at Paul, then you don't know Pat Bev. Because he kept right on going and going because that's what Pat Bev does. Like saying that Monty Williams screwed up by taking DeAndre Ayton out of the game.
1: They benched the wrong person. Should have benched Chris.
0: Credit ESPN. And he was not yet finished. Far from it. There was also this. Do guys
1: in the NBA go to sleep early the night before playing the Phoenix Suns? Hell no. No. I'm going to Steak 44, over there in Phoenix. I'm mm-hmm. gonna have me a nice little wine, probably sweat it out, and but uh, the pregame shoot around and get ready for Chris Paul, Steph Curry. I'm going. I'm going to bed at eight o'clock. Mom, don't call me. My girl, don't call me. I don't. I'm, I'm locked in right now. It's not. It's, it's it's two different monsters.
0: Credit ESPN again. Steak smack, having some wine smack, sweating it out during the pregame shoot around smack. I mean, this dude was relentless. It was merciless. And it was personal. Very, very personal. He was absolutely soaking every studio with his venom. I mean, listen, Pat Bev has been feuding with CP3 since way before the association. This goes all the way back to summer camps. So yesterday was a Chris Paul Christmas for him. And he was unwrapping new takes every Five seconds. It seemed like the dude was on practically every single show on that network and he was looking to take out CP3 every single chance he got. He was feeling it. He was on top of the world. I mean, what a day he was having. But then everything boomeranged on Bev. See now if you know this show, if you know this particular show, you know this is a huge Pat Beverly house. I love this guy's game. I love this guy's attitude. I love this guy's rap. I love this guy's approach. However, Mr. 94 feet got about 94 feet over his skis. Because as horrible as Chris Paul was on Sunday night, and trust me, he was horrible. He was atrocious. Keep this in mind. Chris Paul, the same Chris Paul, did put 41 on Pat Bev and the Clippers in a closeout game last year. This busted up, broken down, old fool that Pat Bev is killing and talking about not being afraid of and having a steak before facing killed the same Pat Bev and company for 41 less than 11 months ago. Blew them out, sent them to Cancun. So maybe Bev's game plan should not have been to have a steak and some wine before that beat down. Oh, and by the way, I hate to say this, too, about my guy, but Beverly did not even finish that game. He got tossed in the fourth for shoving Paul from behind when they were heading toward their benches for a timeout in a blowout. So, obviously, it is deeply personal. Bev hates Paul. Chris Paul humiliated him on national TV last June, so Pat Bev wanted to pay him back yesterday. And as much as Bev wanted to carve him up, here's the thing. All right. Like he thought to himself, man, it is on. You watch this. You watch this. As much as he wanted to carve this guy up, he actually did Chris Paul a favor. He did because he went so hard for him and it was so personal for him that it actually distracted from all the legit criticism of Chris Paul. Beverly coming that hard with his traffic cone smack and his steak smack and his wine smack and his sweated out during the shoot around smack actually gave the Chris Paul army a convenient way to fight back. It gave them a way to change the narrative about how Paul had choked again. It actually gave Paul a way out because before Pat Bev started going, the Chris Paul army had nothing. Their guy, the point god, one of the alleged greatest leaders in any sport, completely got punked in the biggest moment after doing the exact same thing in the finals last year. But then Bev came for him in only the way he can, and then the Army could say those attacks were personal, that he was still bent about summer camp or that 41 spot that he dropped on his head last year. And they could say that Beverly could only dream of putting up the terrible numbers that Paul put up, as if that matters. Hey, one more thing about that. If you're going to say that Pat Bev is not good enough to talk about Chris Paul like that, that's a dumb take. It's a dumb take. I'm going to tell you why that's a dumb take. That means that the only people who are allowed to talk about basketball then, if that's your take... The only people allowed to have actual takes on basketball then are Jordan, LeBron, Magic, and Bird. Everybody else needs to just shut the hell up if that's your take. Yeah, Beverly, he doesn't matter. He can't talk about Chris Paul. He's a scrub. He can't do it. He can't do it. Oh, all right. So if you're only as credible numbers-wise as Chris Paul, then only five people are allowed to talk about basketball. Dumb, dumb take. Of course, the standard is different for Chris Paul and Patrick Beverly because one guy's Chris Paul and one guy's Patrick Beverly. One guy is allegedly one of the greatest basketball players of all time, the other guy is one of the greatest talkers of all time. So let's just be really clear about this. Let me help you understand this. Two things are true. Patrick Beverly did get in over his skis yesterday. And Chris Paul was hot garbage on Sunday. And Paul's not going to live that down. That's also true. Pat Bev getting personal and wild on Chris Paul yesterday and saying whatever he's saying today because ESPN's running it back again. That's what they do. It doesn't change a thing, though, about Chris Paul's no-show in Game 7. Paul was horrible in Game 7. That's a permanent stain on his record. And the fact is, it's nothing new. Sunday night did not change his reputation, it only underlined it. He was terrible. And no matter how personal Pat Bev gets with it or how wild he gets with it, it does not change the fact that when the alleged point god was called upon by his team, he melted, he buckled. Not only was he not their biggest strength, he was their biggest weakness. And then maybe he got hurt, or maybe he faked an injury, or something like that. So, Chris Paul Army, if you want to say that Pat Bev was too mean to your guy, that's fine. Too personal, that's fine. If you want to point to the scoreboard of last year, that's fine. If you want to say that he was in over his skis, all fine. That's good. But none of that changes what happened Sunday night. And nothing the CPA says will change that either. You all have to live with the fact that the point God is the choke God and nothing will ever change that. I mean, if you could harness the hate that Pat Bev has for Chris Paul, that energy in and of itself could probably prevent all the rolling blockouts that we are sure to have in California this summer. I like that energy. I wonder if when he was done yesterday... Before they ran it back today on ESPN, I wonder if when that day was over and he was through with the ESPN car wash and the cameras turned off, I I picture it was like the Timberwolves playing game victory. Like, I wonder if my guy jumped up on that glass desk between Stephen A. and my man Wendy and screamed, get the bleep out of here to CP. Get out of here, CP. And then threw his shirt to the camera. I wonder if he was up on that glass table screaming, take his ass home. Take their ass home. Take their ass home. Take their ass home. I mean, I would tell Pat to ease up. You've already choked out the choke God. He's done. He can't defend himself, but that car wash is still going on. That car wash is still going. And I wonder if they're building a cat wash into that car wash. What if my man Pat Bev will take his act over that cat wash, too? It' yeah. a calm. So quick question: Why is old trapper beef jerky so amazing? Let's start with the fact that it is a family-run business, a family business which stands by quality and produces the world's best beef jerky. Now, I, I've made this point many, many times, and I want to make it again right now. Beef jerky is not just beef jerky. I think some of you go to the store and you reach for the beef jerky and you think it's all the same. In fact, you might not even know what you're buying. That's a big mistake. Stop making that mistake. All beef jerky is not the same. In fact, there's nothing like Old Trapper. It is simply the best. Four mouth-watering flavors, so you can get your choice of whatever you want. Myself, I like them all the same. I bounce back and forth between each and every one of them. So you can do the same thing. They come in four-ounce bags. If you need to learn, do it that way. If you already know what you want, go with the 18-ouncer. That way there's enough for everybody the entire unit, the entire family, the entire team. If you do not see it, ask for Old Trapper by name because no other jerky compares Old Trapper. What is your beef? We are joined by Nico Harrison. Nico, it's great to have you back. How are you?
2: Rome, I'm doing great. You always make me sound so good when you introduce me. I appreciate that. Dude, you got a good resume.
0: <laughs> you got a good resume. You've had a good basketball life. Listen, let me ask you first. I know you're focused on the conference finals, Nico, but if you could, can you take me back to Sunday for a moment? I'm kind of curious. What kind of emotions were you feeling before that game? And then what was it like once that game started to unfold the way it did?
2: I was I was a little bit... Uh, I felt we were prepared. I felt we did you know, all the work that we could do up to that point. But I've seen so many Game 7s. I've seen, you know, some of the greatest players in Game 7 not have the games that they expected to have. So uh, there was a little uneasiness about how we would actually perform. Even though we were prepared, how would we actually perform? And I was pleasantly surprised that we came out and, uh, and really
0: attacked them from, from the jump. Nico Harrison joining us. I think that's really interesting what you said, that you've seen so many Game 7s, and even the very best of players, you're not sure how they might perform in that moment. And then you've got Luca, right? Luca was so dominant from the start of that game, hitting shots, talking junk, being a presence, really feeding off the energy of the moment. When you go into a Game 7 and you've got Luca with you, how much confidence does that give every player and really everybody in the organization?
2: No, and that's, that's exactly, that's just the, the way Luca came out. Uh, from the jump it it gave everybody on our team confidence and i i think they all fed off of that and luca knew by him coming out you know attacking from from the get go that everybody would just follow his lead and that's that's why you you know you want to have a a superstar like luca on your team cuz cuz you you know you always have a chance with that
0: So you've been around great players for a long, long time, and you're around one right now. So let me ask you, is there like a similar personal quality or a characteristic that great players have that separate them from everybody else? Is there that one thing or things that's common for all of them?
2: I think there's there is. I think there's just there's just something in them that when the chips are down, when nobody else can do it, they thrive in that moment. And they can do it and, and they they relish in, in the in the tough times.
0: We're talking to Nico Harrison. Nico Phoenix got you guys pretty good in game five and it seemed like they felt pretty good about themselves in the aftermath. Did your players and coaches take any mental notes about that? Like I'm not saying you needed any additional motivation. That's not the case, but did did you get a little extra juice from that?
2: Yeah, we did. We definitely did. We felt we felt that we weren't being taken, you know, very serious seriously and uh and our guys our guys kind of, you know, we've been the underdog and we're fine with that, but I think our guys kind of, you know, they added a little extra juice just like you said and and that was that was just what we needed
0: We are talking to Nico Harrison. So you're in your first season with the team. Jason Kidd is in his first season as the team's head coach. There are a lot of new faces at the start of the season. And then you had changes to the roster during the season. Like You and I talked about this back in November, but I want to revisit this. How were you able to get everybody on the same page so quickly?
2: The biggest thing is Jason Kidd and his staff. I mean, they came in. um, They're they're extremely thorough. Uh, They set the tone from day one. You know, started practices with defense and showed everybody his defensive philosophy. Held everybody accountable from day one, uh, and it and it just continued. Now it took a while for guys to catch on, and you know we have we have two really good individual defenders, uh, and Finny uh and also also, uh, gosh, I can I'm drawing a blank, <laughs> but anyways, we have really good individuals uh, defenders. Reggie Bullock's the other one. And they're used to chasing the team's best player the whole time. And that's what they've been doing their, their whole career. But in our defensive team, they don't do that. Sometimes they have to get off, get off the player. And so it took them a while to actually learn, you know, his team's defensive concept. So I think, I think he just did a really good job from day one instilling that in the team. And, and although it took a while, eventually, probably around the middle of December, we, we started catching on.
0: We're talking to Nico Harrison. You know what, in terms of that and also Jason Kidd, you've known him a long time and he had some success as a head coach with the Nets and with the Bucks. but he said that he really improved during his time as an assistant with Frank Vogel. From where you're sitting, how much has he grown over the past year? In fact, how much has he grown as a coach over the years and what do you make of the job that he's done this year specifically?
2: Oh, the job he's done is phenomenal and, and he's definitely grown. I mean, uh, the defensive scheme he's using is Frank Vogel scheme. Um, I think the way he supported Frank in the in the first chair, uh, with having those superstars on his team, I think that was a remarkable job. And and you know Frank Frank actually is an underrated coach. He doesn't get a lot of get a lot of props for what he did in winning a championship in L.A. And Jason Kidd was instrumental in supporting him the whole way. So you know that's that's what good good players, good coaches, good executives do. They learn you know every step of the way. And I think he's He's learned every step of the way uh, and done a phenomenal job this year.
0: And, Nico, I've got to say, you made that huge move in February when you traded Christoph Porzingis for Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans. Dinwiddie had that huge Game 7 where he had 30. Bertans had four threes in Game 4. Obviously, you're looking to make any move you can to improve your team, but how gratifying was it to see those two guys step up in such prominent roles on such a big stage?
2: Oh, my gosh. It was, it was amazing Uh one, for those two guys, and then also for us. You know, you hope when you make a trade like that that it works out how it did, but, but you never really know. It's, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're doing as much work and research into it as you can, but you never know how, it, how a change of scenery is going to help somebody. Uh, but, but both those guys have been phenomenal for us. They've been absolutely phenomenal.
0: Nico, one last time. I just want to revisit that Frank Vogel thing for a second because I'm here in Southern California. It seems like when the Lakers won that championship, people were so quick to say, yeah, well, it was a bubble championship, and Vogel got no credit whatsoever. I've always thought he was such an underappreciated, underrated head coach, so he gets no credit when they win it all, and then when things go awry and it goes south, then, like, it's all on him. It's all his fault. Can you speak to that just one more time? What do you make of him as a head coach, and does he get the credit he deserves?
2: No, he doesn't get the credit at all. But, but the thing, uh, Jason and I talk about this all the time, the city of L.A. didn't get to experience the championship. They didn't get to come out for the, for the playoffs. They didn't get to have a parade. So because they didn't get to experience it, it's almost like it didn't really happen. Although there is a banner up there. It's like it didn't, didn't really happen. And I think if the city had a chance to experience it, I think he would have got more credit. Uh, and, and he definitely deserves a lot of credit.
0: I appreciate you saying that. Nico Harrison joining me for a few more moments. So I know you're not going to take a victory lap for advancing to the conference finals. Like in your words, you want to be greedy, but in a really good way. At the same time, you know, you and some of the others are already getting ready for the draft combine. So how do you balance both planning for the future, but living in the moment at the same time?
2: Uh, the biggest thing is, you know, trust your teammates. You know, I, I believe in serving leadership and we have an amazing team. Uh, staff uh, Michael Finley. He, he leads all the scouts. All of our scouts are down, down here at Chicago. I'm actually here too. I have a GM meeting uh, later this afternoon, so I'll, I'll fly back to San Francisco tomorrow. So, it's, you know, our scouts have seen all these players play all, all season long. So, you know, at this point, you just got to do a good job of trusting them. That that what they see and what they, what they do is going to help us help us prepare for it. You know, the worst thing you want to do is have me. You know our scouts are flying around the world, seeing all these players playing. <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm going to draft somebody that's not even, you know, someone that they like. So you just trust your teammate, trust your team, trust that they're going to they're going to be prepared. And
0: and uh, I think we'll be fine. The Draft lottery's coming up really quickly. You mentioned Michael Finley; he was such an explosive talent, such a great player. What's he like as an executive?
2: He's the best. He's super balanced. Um, he knows he knows the players. He knows the game. But he's, he's just a very balanced person. He doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low. Um, no task is beneath him, no task is too hard for him. He's, he's a great, great yin and yang, and I, I actually love working with him.
0: I like it. He is the GM of the Dallas Mavericks. He was named that last June. 19 years at Nike. Three-time first-team All-Conference player at Montana State. And, of course, you got the Western Conference Finals getting underway tomorrow. Dallas at Golden State. Nico Harrison, my guest. Nico, great to have you back on. Really appreciate it. Good luck on that one.
2: No, thanks. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm, like I told you last time, anytime, I'm glad to be on,
0: on the show with you. Hey, guys, let me ask you something. What are you doing when it comes to skin care? Yeah, that's what I thought. You probably have no routine whatsoever. Bad play. But this is where Tiege Hanley comes in. Tiege Hanley is a men's skincare company that helps guys start and maintain a healthy skincare routine by making the process uncomplicated. That's your problem. You don't have a plan, but you need one, and now you do. As an example, let me recommend to you the skincare system level one. It's the easiest way to get started and it comes with all the basics that you need to take care of your skin. The products included are a face wash, an exfoliating scrub, an AM moisturizer, and a PM moisturizer. Listen, you may think that you don't need a skincare routine, but you do. Trust me, I know I do. I'm in front of a camera every single day, so I take this seriously. And this plan and this routine work perfectly for me and in my process. But don't take my word for it. Tish Hanley has over 5,000 five-star reviews, 5,000 plus five-star reviews on their website from customers worldwide. And because Tiege Hanley is sponsoring today's episode, they are offering you a great deal. Just go to Tiege.com slash Rome, and you'll get 30% off your first box plus a free gift. That's t slash Rome. It's an amazing deal. t slash Rome. I do want to talk about the NFL, though, for a minute. Because the biggest mystery in the league right now, has got nothing to do with a head coach or a quarterback. It's not, where is Jimmy G going to end up? It's not, where is Baker Mayfield going to play? It's not, how is Russ going to fit in with Denver? It's not even, is Drew Brees about to make one of the biggest mistakes ever and attempt to come back that really nobody wants to see? No, it's none of these things. I mean, they may have some intrigue, but nothing compared to this. No, the single biggest mystery in the NFL right now is who is going to call offensive plays for the hood this season. In other words, who is going to replace Josh McDaniels in New England? As of right now, there is no official Patriots offensive coordinator, none that we know of. And whoever ends up calling plays there has some enormous shoes to fill. Enormous. Which is probably why there was legit Pat fan panic yesterday. When the dude that everybody was hoping would have nothing to do with the offense literally stepped up and announced that he will have everything to do with the offense this coming season. Big surprise, everybody. Joe Judges, big mouth, got him in big trouble yet again. Now, where have we seen that movie before? For some reason, The Hood hired this tool back. And for some reason, The Hood is letting this guy hang around his young franchise quarterback. So, of course, Judge, being Judge, could not wait to brag to the media about it the very first chance he got. And while his answer yesterday was a lot shorter than that bizarre and unhinged 11-minute diatribe that got him run the hell out of New York, it still got him in trouble with Pat's fan.
3: Yeah, so I'll give you a direct answer right there not to be a base on anything. I am working with Mac, along with you know, Smithfield on the offense. I work with all the skill group on offense. Uh, I'd say all of us are working collectively, all right, as a coaching unit to work with the entire offense. So that's the most direct and uh, you know, specific answer I could give you on that, guys. Uh, in terms of you know, who's coaching each position, you'll see me on the field with the quarterbacks. Uh, we'll be meeting together as a skill group. We'll break off in individual meetings. You know, for us, it's important right now for all of our coaches to be able to coach all the skill players, okay, or for that matter, the line players as well as we go through this. Since we divide up and run two and three spot drills, it's important that if it's a ball handling drill, running it, that they can coach the quarterbacks as well. We're all on the same page. It's been a main emphasis for us as a coaching staff that we want to make sure we can all coach all the players, and that nobody's out there, you know, with you know, a lack of knowledge in the offense.
0: Wait, wait, what? Did this guy not begin that response by saying, I'm going to give you a direct answer?
3: Yeah, so I'll give you a direct answer right there, not to be a base on anything.
0: And then that direct answer turns into a bunch of the normal word salad gobbledygook. You know, hit that with some blue cheese, Judge. That's like some Pete Carroll, super fast, gum-chomping word salad after saying, I'm going to give you a direct answer.
3: Yeah, so I'll give you a direct answer right there, not to be a base on anything.
0: Then what was direct about that answer? What the hell did he even say? And who answers a simple question with, I'm going to give you a direct answer. What, what, I'm going to give you an indirect answer, which is what it was. Just answer the question, man. This guy, he can't not be him. And then he just goes on this filibuster about nothing. There was nothing direct about that answer. Pat's fan had two reactions to that direct answer. No! no! And, oh no! I mean, holy crap. Mac Jones no! better be getting himself in shape for some third and long QB sneaks. I mean, is there anybody in the world who likes the sound of their own voice as much as Joe Judge? Is there anybody on the planet who sounds dumber thinking they sound smart? or who says more extra unnecessary words that don't mean anything at all. I mean, that was the ultimate word salad. What did he even just say? Can anybody anywhere make any sense out of that, quote, direct answer? My man is talking so far out his ass. It's crazy to me that he faces forward when he's at the podium. I mean, obviously, getting fired after two seasons in New York did nothing to shake this dude's belief that he is the second coming of Bill Parcells, when he probably isn't even the second coming of Ray Hanley, which is why Pat's fan does not want this guy anywhere near their young quarterback, Mac Jones. They don't want their potential franchise quarterback hanging around a dude who sets up a basketball hoop to teach guys how to play football or who tapes tennis balls to players' hands at practice, or who makes his coaches run laps. Why would that guy want to be anywhere near that guy? Do you remember how badly the Giants did not want to fire this guy? And then remember how he literally talked his way out of that job because he could not shut the hell up. Remember all that. They weren't going to fire this guy until he literally talked his way out of a job and left them no choice. It sounds like he's trying to do the exact same thing again. He's trying to talk his way out of the Pats offensive coordinator role before he even gets the role because he's bragging to the media that he's spending his days poisoning the mind of Mac Jones, which is then setting off a regional panic yesterday in New England. A totally appropriate regional panic. Would you listen, Alvin, one more time to this answer? A quote, direct response on his part.
3: Yeah, so I'll give you a direct answer right there, not to be based on anything. I am working with Mac, along with you know, small offense. I work with all the skill group on offense. Uh, I'd say all of us are working collectively, all right, as a coaching unit to work with the entire offense. So that's the most direct and uh, you know, specific answer I could give you on that, guys. Uh, in terms of you know, who's coaching each position, you'll see me on the field with the quarterbacks. Uh, we'll be meeting together as a skill group. We'll break off in individual meetings. You know, for us, it's important right now for all of our coaches to be able to coach all the skill players, okay, or for that matter, the line players as well as we go through this. And as we divide up and run two and three spot drills, it's important that if it's a ball handling drill, they're running it. That they can coach the quarterbacks as well. And we're on the same page. And it's been a main emphasis for us as a coaching staff that we want to make sure we can all coach all the players, and that nobody's out there, you know, with you know, a lack of knowledge in the offense.
0: I thought the Patriot way was not allowed was to not let anybody say anything about anything. So how'd this guy get in front of a mic and a camera? Better yet, how did this guy get in front of Mac Jones? Or a Patriots offensive play sheet? Or any of the other players? Or any pro football players at all? This is a coach who has never called plays in the NFL. A guy who hired the clapper to call his plays when he got his big chance in New York. And after he fired the clapper, he still did not call plays himself, even with his job clearly on the line. But he's going to call plays for the Patriots? Joe Judge cannot be the Hood's only option. And he's not, of course. It's just that the other contender for Josh McDaniel's old role is barely a better alternative because apparently it's Matt Patricia. Yes, the dude who used to be the Pats' D coordinator. And then went and fell on his face in Detroit. Now says he's going to be coaching offensive linemen for the first time since 2005. I mean, Detroit is so scarred from this dude that just seeing him yesterday show up at his presser with that stupid pencil behind his ear triggered all kinds of Motown emotions. And let's just say Pat's fans could not have been that thrilled to hear what he was selling either. I, I mean, look, dude, I understand that you have forgotten more football than I'll know in a million years. But seriously, enough with the ear, Ticonderoga. Enough with the ear pencil. It is the most useless coaching accessory ever. This dude would carry around a laminated play sheet and a pencil in his ear. Those two things do not mix. I mean, it's like he thinks that the pencil makes him look smart. Like it's going to somehow distract from his terrible coaching. Like he's running some kind of pencil misdirection. Dude, it's the worst coaching prop ever. Ever. I mean, like Joe Judge, you're just a big gimmicky clown, man. Stop with the pencil. These two dudes make Jim Zorn... Look and sound incredibly serious in as a head coach. Um, um, uh, in that in that um. These two dudes, between their word salads and their pencils, are making Jim Tom Sula look I straight I up competent.
4: The only guy that these two
0: favorably compare to right about now is freaking Perv. Happy Hump Day Eve, Perv.
2: That's devastating.
0: But then again, literally every coach in the history of the league compares favorably to perv. Which is why I really am not sure why the hood let either of these two guys back in the door. And why he's letting either of them anywhere near his offense. It's like the saddest camp competition I've ever seen. Like, I don't know who's going to win. But I know Pat's fan will lose if it's either of these two dudes. I mean, you got to tell me that the hood is just doing this to troll all of us and mostly me. Like, he knew Radio Man would bite on this. Like, the hood's got to be sit- sitting back laughing, thinking it's hilarious. Like, it's a first ballot Hall of Fame troll job. Hood's got to be like, hey, Stephen. Hey, Stephen, stop licking yourself. Hey, Stephen. Stephen, look at this. Watch this. Watch this. Stephen. 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 Stop licking your face. Listen to me. Hey, 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 radio man, you think you're so smart, huh? 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 Yeah, I'm just keeping these two morons busy. I like to watch clown fights, all right? You know, like bum fights. Oh, wait, that's right. You this banned bum financial. smack from your show. I forgot. Anyway, I like to keep my friends close <laughs> and my idiot friends closer. But neither of these dopes are going to be calling the plays. Don't you worry about that. But you, you radio man, on the other hand, you are a moron and a sucker. And I knew you'd bite. Hook, line, and sinker, radio boy. Hook, line, and sinker. Hook, line, and sinker. No one close to you should have to endure that dreaded knock on the door. The knock that comes from a police officer who must tell your loved one that you were killed in a car crash. It's a message that gets even worse when they learn that your death may have been prevented if you had only been wearing your seatbelt. The simple fact is, regardless of what type of car you ride in, seatbelt use is the single most effective way to stay alive in a crash that's why the national highway traffic safety administration is spreading the word we want to raise the profile of seatbelt safety so we can save lives so whether you're going on a cross-country trip or just up the street please buckle up don't risk it and remember click it or ticket brought to you by NHTSA Micah Hyde is my guest Mike, I know it's been an extremely challenging week. It's nice to have you on. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good, good. Mike, in fact, it's been a horrific week in the sense that an 18-year-old gunman opened fire in that Buffalo supermarket, killing 10 people and wounding three others. Like, I'm not even really sure how to begin this other than to ask, again, how are you and how would you describe the mood around town and in the facility?
1: Well, uh, yeah, we all heard the news um, over the weekend. um, And and I... I mean, I can honestly say I'm still shocked. Like, I don't know, like you kind of just feel helpless. Like there's nothing, like you just feel like there's nothing you can do. And I was just so shocked um, to hear, uh, you know, just what happened in downtown Buffalo. You know, I, we live in Orchard Park, 15 minutes away. And, you know, for something like that to happen is just, uh, uh, it's shocking and, and super sad and you just, you just don't, you can't even really put it into words and, um just the community um or, you know around buffalo and and where we live same thing just just shocked and um but those people in, in buffalo are, are are you know resilient um you know we were able to have the softball game the next day we were kind of you know debating on doing it um just because how how heavy everybody's heart was and you know it just didn't feel right going out there and and you know smiling and having fun but at the end of the day um, we knew, you know, getting the, the community together and doing just that, um, you know, kind of, you know, ease up the uh, the feelings for a couple hours. And um, But, yeah, it's just still shocked at what's going on around around Buffalo.
0: Michael Hyde is joining us. You know, Mike, I want to talk to you about that softball game. And, you know, far be it for you or I to try to make sense of this, But and, and to your point, it hasn't even fully sunk in yet. But how do we begin to wrap our heads around something so senseless? Mm -hmm. and such utter disregard for life
1: yeah uh well i think a lot of people including myself um you know i I can't even put myself in the shoes of you know somebody that would do something like that just so much hate so much anger um coming from you know one individual and i just I, i i honestly can't understand it um so you know being able to like i said the next day um, wake up, uh, you know, I had family there, all the, all the, you know, the fans, teammates, coaches, sponsors, um, you know, we just wanted to be together, um, and just show love to the, to the community. Um, you know, the, you know, Magic Few Foundation, um, you know, we, we do a lot of great things for the youth, showing love to the youth, um, the community of Buffalo. And, um, you know, we just wanted to be there for each other. And, and you know if if you were there, you could feel the energy in that in that stadium. Um, you know, it just, you know, it just it, it felt good to to you know be out and putting a smile on people's faces because you know we were all out there, you know, having fun and getting the crowd into it and doing all that type of stuff. But we all knew, you know, that it was it was going to be heavy hearts um, at the beginning and also at the end. You know, just kind of coming back to reality and understanding you know what went down the day before.
0: Michael, Mike, my guest. Mike, I understand that you had to think about that. Like, is this the right thing to do? Should we go on with the softball game? I'm so glad, and I was not there, but I'm so glad that you did. And I wanted to ask you about the energy because the fact of the matter is your foundation has been very, very active. And when you started this, you know, maybe you started with 1,500, 2,000 people at those games, which is yeah. a great thing. But you had 10,000 people at that ballpark to support the foundation for everybody yeah. to come together. So, no, I wasn't there, but what was the energy like?
1: Well, you know, you said 10,000 ended up being the final count was 11,300. And that is just, that's insane, you know, to even think about. You know, we did this a couple years ago. COVID stopped it for a few years, and it was 1,500, maybe 2,000 people there. Um, And then, you know, this year our sponsors did an amazing job uh, with the help of the Bisons um, and also also the, the people in the organization for the Bills, just getting the word out there and, you know, the players being involved and, you know, taking the time out of their weekend to come to you know on a Sunday and and participate in the game coaches bringing the families out so the energy in the building was just it was it was amazing man it was it was it was cool to see um, everybody rally together um, you know all, a lot of the proceeds are, are going to the victims but then also for the youth in the community that's what the original you know idea of the uh, the softball game was for you know uh, generating money for the for the youth in western New York so um, just seeing everybody come together and smile on their faces, um, just showing love. Uh, it was, it, I, I, I was speechless. You know, I was talking to the crowd a few times and, um, you know, almost got to the point of tearing up just because of, of you know, what everybody was kind of feeling in the building and uh, the energy was fun. And obviously it was a beautiful day in Buffalo. Um, I think that was the, the best week of the year, the nicest week of the year, you know, as far as weather. So everybody was, you know, out, out there in T-shirts, shorts, having a good time. Obviously, you know, the Buffalo Bills, they ra Bills Mafia rallies around them. They always want to be a part of the Buffalo Bills. And then anytime you got, you know, Josh Allen out there smacking bombs and, <laughs> um, you know, guys enjoying some drinks you know, that's, that's the recipe for a good time.
0: Well, that's the truth, right? So glad you guys did that and no surprise that he won home run derby yet again, Micah Hyde joining us, you know, it's, it's kind of cliche and trite, but it does put things in its proper perspective. When you look back, Micah, the, the way the season ended, obviously that loss to Kansas city in overtime was gut wrenching. I'm curious, how did you personally process that? In other words, how long did that stay with you before you ultimately began to convert that to fuel motivation and getting ready for this year?
1: Uh, yeah, you know, I think, well, you know, I think it always, it's always going to stay with you just because you, anytime you get into the playoffs and you, and you lose, you know, you understand how close you are from, from winning it. um You know, we, we felt like we had a good team, you know, a great team that had opportunity of, of winning, but we just didn't, you know, it came down to the end of the game and that's where you got to execute. So it never really goes away, but um, I'm the type of guy that I don't really like to take, you know, too much time off. You know, I heard at a young age from a coach. You know, don't get out of shape saying you don't got to try to get back in shape because that's the worst thing ever so Uh, and i agree with that i agree with that statement so i try to just you know get as soon as i get back out to san diego after the season try to get back working out again and um you know i'm definitely not over that loss Uh, you know all the losses i had throughout the last you know nine years never really get over them but you learn to uh to to kind of keep pushing and you know add some fuel and add some fuel to the fire and, and keep going uh you know, hammering away.
0: You know, Michael, you said we felt like we had a really good team and you did, obviously. You had a really good team. Time will tell, but looking at what this team did in free agency, looking at what the organization did in the draft, do you feel like what was a really good team might be an even better team this season?
5: Oh,
1: for sure. You know, I think that a lot of guys in the locker room have faith and have trust in what Bean and and Sean are doing. Um, You know, I was able to you know, start this whole process with them back in 2017, and and every move that they made has been calculated. Um, so you definitely understand that. But at the end of the day, you know, whatever guys you have on the team, um, you know, it, it doesn't really matter until you go out there and start playing games. Um, you know, this obviously the preseason rankings, all that stuff comes out every year, and you know, some teams are you know have high expectations, some people have low expectations. I think around Buffalo the last. You know, majority of the years I've been there, it's been low expectations. We've been exceeding them, um, and now we got high expectations. So I think that, you know, we just got to go out there and play the games, take it week by week, and and not really worry about what the media is saying. Uh, You know, we understand we do have a good football team. You know, that was evident last year. We added some pieces this year from from what Bean was able to do in the draft. And, um, you know, we just got to go out there and play these games, play our game, and, and, you know, it's going to be a process. You're going to get hit in the mouth, you know, some weeks. You're not going to go undefeated. I think it's safe to say we're not going to go undefeated. Um and I think as long as we have that mindset that just keep getting better each and every week, then you know, hopefully come February we're playing in the in the big game.
0: We're talking to Michael Hyde for another moment or so. One of the pieces they added, Von Miller. What was your reaction mm-hmm. to Von Miller coming aboard and how do you like that fit in the locker room and in the scheme?
1: Love it. Love it. You know, uh I think that's a piece we've been trying to add for the last couple of years. Uh, you know, you know, obviously a guy that is well known around this league, made a lot of money and just, you know, getting after the quarterback and so you know, as a as a DB, you know, I can't I can't wait to step on the football field with him. Um, but definitely a piece we've been trying to get for, for a while, and uh, it's good to see him in the in the red, white, and blue just to, you know, go out there and get after the quarterback.
0: So one last thought. I know you're going to be fired up for a primetime opener no matter what and no matter who it's against, but is there a little more juice when you get that first crack at the defending champs, <clears throat> the Rams on a Thursday night? Oh, it's
1: going to be fun. You know, it's, uh, it's you're not going to win a Super Bowl that night, that's for sure. I think we all understand that. Um, you know, like I said, we just got to go out there and, you know, start a training camp, uh, even, even the start, you know, like right now, um, you know, getting the playbook, understanding it. That, that way it's a process building up to the first game. But, you know, uh, like I just said, it, you're not going to win the Super Bowl on that opening night. So, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to go out there, we're going to have fun, do what we do. And, uh, Try to
0: get a W. I like it. I like the message. A Buffalo Bills safety, two-time All-Pro, Pro Bowler coming off a year where he had a career-high five interceptions, a couple of fumble recoveries, and the Bills start things off, well, long before then, but they open up against the Rams. Micah, again, I know it's been a really challenging week. So glad you went through with the softball game. It was amazing to see, and really good to have you on the show. Thanks so much.
1: I appreciate you, Jim. Anytime, buddy.
0: The future will be great, but today is just as incredible. Meet Nissan's most advanced lineup. If you can't get enough adrenaline, there's the all-new 400 HP Nissan Z. Or for your off-road adventures, check out the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. If you're more of a spontaneous road trip type of person, then hop in the Nissan Pathfinder. And for something more electric, there's the stylish Nissan Aria. So let's enjoy the ride. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase, expected availability this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria. Let's go to Jersey Brandon. Brandon, what's going on? How are you? Thanks for the Vine. Thanks for the Vine, Jimmy.
5: Hey, Jimmy, it's not just me, you and Alan Shipnook that are seeing the similarities between Hefty and Jefty, Right. I mean, how about these veterans coming in here early and setting the tone? Jim, since you're actually taking RSVPs, can we talk about the guy who mailed his in all the way from Duvet? Because it was so good to hear from television's Mark Hollywood. Old Marky Duvet called up to say that Matt uses public fountains like bed comforters. Pretty rich of you, Narc Sharman to be out here giving lessons on who rhymes with what when you pedal more boom-boom in three minutes than match these in a month. Mark, maybe for you, a bidet and a duvet serve the same function, kind of like at Odell's place, allegedly. But we all heard what you said, and you can't squeeze that crap pace back into the tube, dude. Duvet, bidet, bidet, duvet. Hey, if you're really taking yourself a little five-week vacation, bro, seriously, go back to Philly for a few days to reset. Jim did a whole bleeping thing about the juxtaposition of Lardin and Buckets, Mark. Did you miss all that? Philly is about grinders like Buckets, man, not hoogies like you and Lardin. What the hell are you even talking about, Mark? And Jimmy, it might be a waste of my time to bully all these clowns that won't be a factor day of, but I guess we should talk about Chris in Southeast Wisco while we're here. What the hell happened to you, Chris? Weren't you supposed to be enforcing all this crap? Joe Judge thinks you talked yourself out of a job, dude. Hey, Chris, how on earth the day after Kyrie promotes himself to Nets front office, did you manage to promote yourself to Jungle Sheriff or whatever you said without even mentioning it, without even a hint of irony, Chris? Oh, and it says here you've enforced precisely nothing so far. Throw hips, not hands. The hell kind of enforcing is that? Dude, and while we're explaining the context of different sound drops in the show, maybe you come on here and extrapolate on this quote unquote dynasty that you keep slapping your trap about on this show. Like, what are we even doing here? Your back to back to back AAU national championships from 1993. Hey, Brandon, I'm out of
0: time, but I just want to say who are you, dude? And how do you, where did you come from? And how do you know so much about the show if we don't know who you are? Who I mean you're you're somebody. Are you who you say you are? But who are you? Stay tuned. We are in the midst of smack off season, which also means it is RSVP season. In fact, this smack off season started with an RSVP call, right? It was kind of inverted. He reverse engineered the thing for me. Essentially. What I'm saying is, it is Smack Off season because Rick in Buffalo said it was Smack Off season.
5: War Vic in OKL getting a welcome to Pound Town sign for his bedroom. Only problem is he shares a bed with his aunt Betty. War the official start of Smack Off season, the most wonderful time of the year. Thanks for the vine, Jim. I'm out.
0: The best part about that is not. It was not me announcing the start of Smack Off season on my show. It was Rick in Buffalo letting me know that Smack Off season had started. So here's what was happening in that call. If you've won the Smack Off or you are a top contributor, then you already have an automatic invite. Basically this. If you know you're in, you're in. If you have to ask whether or not you're in, you're not in. If you have to ask whether or not you're in, you need a golden ticket to get in. But for the automatic invitees, there is a catch. And the catch is this. We need an RSVP from you. I'm not saying it's mandatory, but I'm saying it's kind of like that involuntary training camp. You got to do it. I mean, it's not mandatory. It's involuntary. It's voluntary, I should say. But you got to do it like everybody else is doing it. So if you want to be a part of the team and you want to be one of those guys who leads from the front and you want to be a factor, then you need to do it. As with any world-class event, any world-class party, you have invites and you have one to the smack off. A world-class event and you are supposed to respond. See you play. Or, as Left and Laguna glossed it in his 2017 RSVP call, Reserve Smack Off Victory Party.
5: RSVP
4: Reserve Smack Off Victory Party, July 28th, Jimmy. Was this fight put on by Bellator or the Belly Tour? I mean, for God's sakes, Chail, have a take and suck in. Anyways, Romy, can't wait for July 28th when I make Chale Kish my rings clean up
0: on sale four. See, like, you know it's a thing when the RSVPs themselves become moments, right? The RSVP, not the event, but the RSVP. Man, they're fun. They're fun, and we have fun with them, and you should, too. We look forward to them. Because in many cases, the RSVP call ends up being better than the smack-off call itself. Totally not looking at you, Victor. And tomorrow
2: we're taking the power back to the people and taking the power away even from you, Rome. We're going to hold a Brexit referendum, and we're going to exit Brad the hell out of here. Rome, thanks for the vine. As you know, I am not just a caller to this show. I am a partner in this show. (laughs) You and I have made a lot of money together over the years, Rome, and that's going to continue tomorrow. I'm going to walk in, go, (laughs) and walk out with a trunk load of cash.
0: See what I mean? I mean, some of these RSVP calls... Oh, thanks, partner. Thank you, Kyrie. Some of these RSVP calls are even better than the actual calls. So, so far, as mentioned by Brandon, we have a couple of clones who have already RSVP'd. As mentioned by Brandon and myself. You've already heard the Rick call. They kicked off the season. Mark in Hollywood did jump in last week. That's what inspired Brandon's call right there. And he also did not disappoint with his RSVP. Why
5: aren't Jerry and the butt slam on WYXT in Nebraska getting paid? please. You do the math, I'll do the jungle. Consider this my RSVP for the smack-off. Sexy Mark Zuckerberg, late.
0: All right, so get up in here. The rest of you, you know who you are. Where are your damn manners? You have been invited to the premier event in the broadcast industry. Time to grab a vine. Time to drop a line. Time to check in. Let us know that you're ready and that you are, in fact, going to show up big on the big day. Because the great ones all do. The best perform at their highest level on the biggest stage. The great ones all do a great job of teasing their performances. As an example, the GOAT. The GOAT, the B-I-C, Brad in Corona, the guy who used his 2020 RSVP to announce to the jungle that he will never, ever retire from calling this show. I'm here today to announce the opposite. I am never retiring,
4: ever. Sorry, guys in the field. Screw all of you equally
5: and super hard. Like Stevie Wonder getting an eye exam. I am 2020, baby. See you boys next Friday.
0: That's bad news for the field. That is bad news for the field because that guy's lost nothing. And I say that as somebody who has not talked to that guy for months. All I know is that guy can show up once a year, right on schedule, dominate, walk off, get his five, grr, and then show up 365 days from that time, and then do it again. And he just said it. I am never going to retire. You may have to kill him to beat him. Don't get any ideas, clowns. He's that good, even with a Stevie Wonder reset.
4: Screw all of you equally and super hard.
0: That whole thing back in the day when Tiger Woods was healthy, it was always Tiger Woods or the field. Tiger Woods or the field. No disrespect to Leff. No disrespect to the Cabo There are some icons. There are some legends. There are some guys that have literally gone on to have amazing broadcast careers in that field. But it's always going to be Brad against the field. Until I see him lose anything at all, that's the way it's going to be. No bias, no prejudice. He's just that good. He's the GOAT. As for the rest of you, now that doesn't mean that he's unbeatable. You know, much like MMA, UFC, everybody gets beat. Brad has not won 28 of these things. He's just the best to ever do it. As for the rest of you, when you hear RSVP calls over the next month, that's what that is. That's why. That's what's happening. And one day, any of you could wind up making an RSVP call, but you first have to get that golden ticket. Like Brandon from Jersey, he cannot RSVP to something he's not yet invited to. However, another call, two calls, one really good take, maybe the turn of an amazing line. I'll give an example when I say the turn of an amazing line the line, throw hips not hands it's almost a good enough line to get you in the field because I want somebody to believe in the miracle you know that 80 to 1 shot can come in it would be like an 80 to 1 shot winning the derby it's happened the standard is the standard the bar is high but it's possible believe me Alan Shipnook Alan good to have you on the show how are you I'm doing great. Always nice to be back here in the jungle. Always good to have you in the jungle. All right. So, the book is finally out today. Phil is not defending his title at the PGA Championship this week. I can't wait to get into the book. But, first things first, why do you think that Phil is not playing? Is he suspended, Alan, or is it something else?
4: Well, you know, the tour is like the Kremlin. They never, you can't get any information out of them. So, uh, they don't talk about disciplinary matters. When all this was breaking in February after the excerpt dropped, you know, someone extremely close to Phil texted me that the tour wanted to suspend him. And I asked for more information and they went dark, but that was clearly on the table, whether he was suspended or he took a voluntary leave of absence. is just purely semantics. And, um, at this point, I'm here at Southern Hills in in Tulsa for the PGA championship, talking to people here and reading the tea leaves. It's pretty clear that Phil, um, period of of reflection as we can call it ended on monday of this week and he could have been here if he wanted to Uh, that's what all the insiders are telling me but the ground has shifted beneath his feet so quickly uh he's just not ready to return to public life and answer the tough questions and and have to declare his allegiance either the pga tour or the saudis Uh, you know that first saudi event's coming up in early june a bunch of players requested permission to play Um, tour members they were turned down is someone going to break that blockade and go over there and, and test this and probably get suspended leading to a court case that could blow up the entire structure, of professional golf. Like that could be coming. And I think Phil's trying to figure out, does he want to be the guy? He's the first one off the boat. Is he waiting to see if someone else is going to do it, um, how it's all going to play out. And uh, there's so much unsettled in his life and in his, his professional future that I think he's just buying himself more time.
0: Mm. Alan Chipnook is joining us. His book, Phil, The Rip Roaring and Unauthorized Biography of Golf's Most Carful Superstar, is out today. Alan, you start the book with an amazing anecdote in the introduction about Phil challenging you to a fight at the 1999 PGA Championship. Lay this out for everybody. What was he so bothered about, and what was that confrontation like?
4: Well, that was really the dawn of the internet age, and I was writing this uh, reader mailbag for. CNNSI.com, which was the nascent Sports Illustrated website. And, you know, this was a period when Tiger Woods had reshaped the whole sport in his image, and Phil couldn't win the big one. And Tiger was working a lot harder at the driving range and in the gym. And some of that you could see in their bodies. You know, Tiger's upper body looked like a martini glass, and Phil's kind of pudgy and doughy. And uh, people were taking shots at him because it was sort of a metaphor for his, his lack of commitment and, and discipline. And, some readers had some unkind things to say, and I, they were in my mailbag. I think Phil conflated those words and thought that I made them mine. But either way, he was pissed off. And so, there's, there's, you also have to know the there's kind of a, a backstory. The golf press has always been very chummy. You know, if you're back then, I was at Sports Illustrated. And if I was covering football, I might not see the same team twice in one season until the playoffs. But in golf, it's the same dudes week after week. We're all thrown together, and you know I call it high school with money. It's this very insular, <laughs> gossipy world, and and you get on each other's nerves. And the interpersonal aspect between the athletes and the reporters is very fraught in some ways. And, and these guys were not used to being criticized. You know, was, there was a gentility in the golf press that was handed down all the way from when you know Grantland Rice was riding the rails with with uh, Bobby Jones, and they invented Augusta National together. And so. Um, Phil was bothered by the tone of it all, and so yeah, he he took me behind the woodshed, and and we had a little some verbal fireworks, and ultimately said throw the first punch, which I declined to do because unlike Phil, I had some important work to do at that PGA. I wound up writing a cover story about Tiger Woods's victory, and um, and so we've had our ups and downs interpersonally. We patched things up, and I've been to Phil's house. We've dined together or just club. When he won the 2013 British Open, I was drinking champagne with him and Amy at this private party at Muirfield. And so he's quite a shapeshifter, and I've been lucky to glimpse him in so many different settings. And I think I was able to bring that intimacy to the book because there's there's these multitudes that live within Phil Mickelson. He's a very complicated, contradictory character, and I tried to capture all that in, in this story.
0: Amazing. Alan Shipnook is joining us. The book is out today. Phil, it is out. It's dropping today you know alan you as you write pretty much from the moment he showed up on tour he was having success in practice round money games what was that like and how much was riding on that back in the day
4: yeah that's part of phil's legend and you know iron sharpens iron he's always believed that the best way to prepare for tournaments is to to play these money games on the tuesdays and wednesdays leading up to it and the money's not that big. Maybe a thousand dollars changes hands. There's a story where John Daly took Phil for fifteen k, and that, that's somewhat legendary. But um, you know, these guys are they're playing for five or ten million dollars later in the week, so it doesn't get that big. But there's the casual games when he's not on tour, and that money gets a lot larger. Like there's there's a fun story with this uh, journeyman pro named Mark Baldwin who uh, was living in Las Vegas and uh, was playing playing a lot of games with you know weekend duffers with suspects handicaps. who liked the action around vegas and one of them had a friend who had a friend who had a friend and ultimately they wound up in a, in a game with phil baldwin could barely pay the rent so his his buddy was 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 staking him and it all comes down to the last hole and i don't want to spoil too much of the surprise but it the trash talking is exquisite phil pulls off this amazing shot to sweep all the bets and you know, Mark Baldwin has a little too much discretion to tell me exactly how much money changed hands. But he said that, you know, his guy basically bought Phil the equivalent of a, of a nice car that day. And so um, it can, the, you know, the commas and the zeros can go up from there. And uh, Phil is an adrenaline junkie. He needs that. He's, he needs the juice. Whether it's the 72nd hole at Wingfoot, whether it's a, it's a practice round, uh, whether he's playing back rat in Vegas, uh, whether he, he's betting at, at the sports book at the Bellagio. I mean, the through line for Phil is that he needs that juice. And uh, it's part of who he is. It's part of what makes him so fun to watch on the golf course. And it's also led him astray more than a few times.
0: We're talking to Alan Chipnook. His book is out today. Alan, so you've got a connection, right? He, I would imagine because of his gambling, he's had a connection to, let's just say, some interesting characters. What about the connection to Billy Walters and the insider trading story that connected to his need to pay back gambling debts, which seems strange, given the money that he was making, but as you write, quote, according to a source with direct access to the documents, Mickelson had gambling losses totaling more than $40 million in the four-year period, 2010 to 14, that was scrutinized, end of quote. $40 Like, what was your reaction when you heard that number?
4: Well, that's always been one of the mysteries. Is You know, Phil's very open about his gambling, and when he you know, he picked the Ravens back in '02 at 28 to 1. He, he cashed a ticket for more than half a million dollars. He loved to talk about that. And so um, how big, how deep were the waters that Phil was swimming in? No one really knew. And that was one of the mysteries I wanted to unravel in this book. And the, the Billy Walters escapade, and I, probably some of your listeners know Billy Walters. He's a legend in Vegas. He was really the f- first gambler to bring computer data into the gambling world in the 1980s. And he, he claims that in the 40 years since, he's only ever lost money in one year. And some of some of his years, he's been in the mid-eight figures in his winnings. And because of what he was doing, he was indicted numerous times. He always beat the rap, which turned him into a folk hero around Las Vegas. And he also loved golf. He, he was playing in the Pell Beach Pro-Am and, and Wednesday Pro-Am on the PGA Tour. And so Phil sought him out, and they, be, they became Friends. Billy became a mentor and they became essentially betting partners because it was a symbiotic relationship where Phil wanted the inside information that Billy had and, and the, the expertise and the knowledge and Billy would get cut off by his own bookmakers because he had too much success. So uh, having access to Phil's people was, was quite helpful. So uh, they would bet together, but a lot of times Billy didn't believe in the bet. And so, you know, he might place the bet on, on Phil's behalf, but he wouldn't put his own money in. And so over over time, Phil wound up owing Billy Walters a substantial amount of money, uh, you know, according to the, the government tran- trial and transcripts. You know, it was three million dollars. And so uh, simultaneously, Billy loves to play the stock market, as does Phil. And Billy came into possession of some information uh, that, that he used in, involving Dean's Foods and it led to this big insider trading case. Billy Walters was convicted. He went to jail. Phil skated. He was named as a relief defendant, which means he was kind of adjacent to this information, but he may not have had direct knowledge of its source. He had to pay back a million dollars of ill-gotten gains, which is one of my favorite terms, but he didn't do any jail time, and he was never charged with wrongdoing. But in, in Billy Walter's analysis if Phil had testified on his behalf about the origin of this information and, and not knowing how how it changed hands, it would have helped Billy Walter's case. But Phil took made it clear he was going to take the Fifth Amendment. He, ne- he never was called to testify, and Billy went down the river. And so it's a, quite a fascinating tale in both of their lives and um, to tease it out in the book and to really understand the nature of the relationship. How did Phil beat the rap? All of these things, it's a fascinating turn in the book. And um, again, there's so many mysteries around Phil, how deep does the gambling go? What really happened to him in Billy? What really happened in the breakup with him and Bones? And, you know, I get to the bottom of all these mysteries in the book and as, as a reporter and someone who's been adjacent to these stories, it was really satisfying to get the real information
0: alan shipnook is joining us for a few more moments i have the book it's an amazing read it's an incredible book you know to the point you just made alan we're talking about connections to insider trading losing tons of money gambling shady mob adjacent contacts potential connections to money laundering the saudi comments the list goes on and on and on how does none of this ever seem to stick to phil
4: yeah, he's, I mean, he's a master manipulator of the media, and he's talked his way out of so many controversies. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately, it's finally, the bill finally came due with the Saudis, but he's, he's a very sophisticated and very slippery character, and um, he has a lot of personal charm, and he's cultivated a lot of relationships with a lot of reporters, and so he's been able to get by. And that's all, I examine all that stuff in the book, and it, to me it's some of the most fascinating uh, material. And I've been part of that, too. I mean, obviously, we talked about at the beginning when he wants to fight me. I mean, I've been bullied. I've been threatened. I've been charmed. Uh, I'm, you know, I've been tried. They, Phil's attorney, tried to hire me to be a consultant. as Phil's going to take on the tour for his media rights last year, which of course I declined. I'm in the middle of writing a book about Phil. I can't take his money. It's the most <laughs> glaringly obvious conflict of interest in the this world, guy, man. but they still, still made the offer. It tells you something. So, it's, it's fascinating to, to unwind all these controversies and see how Phil has managed to, to skate until now.
0: Yeah. Hey, one more thing before you go, I, I wish we could do this forever. I mean, it's fascinating, but you've referenced a story quote that would have been international news end quote, but could not be printed in the book because it was off the record. How painful was it not to be able to include that? And on the scale of news stories, how big would this be? Like, would it be in the neighborhood of the Tiger Woods cheating scandal that big? Well, that was so salacious. I mean, Tiger was on the back page of the,
4: of the New York Post 20 days in a row. I, I, it wouldn't have risen to that level, but in the context of the sports world, it would have been monumental. But I, I am the keeper of so many secrets on this on this book because everyone wanted to tell me everything. And there were so many agreements what was off the record, how things would be sourced, and I honored every single one of them. And so, yeah, this bombshell was told to me, and it causes me physical discomfort to the point, like almost having a seizure, that I can't put it in my book. But again, I, I have an obligation to my source, and you know, I have, I have my word, and that, that's all I have. So, there's so many things like that. That's the irony of. Of Phil, you know, accusing me of using some of this material that was off the record, which it never was. It never would have been because I would have pushed back so hard. Like, I know so much that's not in the book because I had agreed I I wouldn't use it or the sourcing people wouldn't put their name on. I didn't feel comfortable using it without a name. And, like, I really did feel a lot of solids in the reporting of this book. But, um, you know, that was part of my pledge to, to write a fair and balanced book. And, Uh, But, yeah, to answer your question, it it causes me great physical discomfort.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to have a seizure not hearing that story. So (laughs) last thought, to your point that everybody could not wait to tell you things, the question you've been asked by people the most since you covered the tour is, quote, who's the biggest a-hole on the tour? And the second most frequently asked question is, is Phil Mickelson a phony? So after years of covering him and writing this book, how would you answer that question?
4: He's in, he's incredibly phony and fake, but he's also very real and genuine. And it just it's very it's very contextual. And it's the enigma of Phil Mickelson. He is all things. Like everything you ever heard about him is true. Is he incredibly generous and philanthropic? And does he do all these random acts of kindness for fans and other players? Yes. He has a huge heart. And is he petty and scheming and vindictive? Yes. We, we're seeing that now. And. That's what makes him so fascinating for a biographer and hopefully for a reader, because we as humans, we all have our contradictions, but there are these warring impulses in Phil that are writ large. He's a huge personality. He's had this big, messy life. And so to try and capture all of that was was a a great challenge. And people, you know, the book's out now and people have been tweeting me and whatever and saying... I've read, I don't know how to feel about Phil. Like sometimes as a remus, I want to love him and cheer for him. And sometimes I'm appalled and sometimes I'm laughing and sometimes I'm rolling my eyes. And hopefully that means I did my job because Phil is all things. And that's what makes him so unique. And he's had this very long run in the public eye and he's been, he's stepped in it a bunch of times and there's really no, no athlete in sports has had this kind of run for over three decades. He has been one of the best, golfers on the planet. It's unparalleled longevity. He's never missed any time when he broke his leg skiing back in 94 and now in this self-imposed exile. And it's really fascinating the life he's led. And, uh, you know, for me as a writer, it was an incredible challenge to capture it all. And I did the best I could. I, I leave it up to the readers. You know, I'm not here to tell you what to think about Phil or what to believe, I'm just laying it all out there like a buffet. And you'll pick and choose the things that are tastiest. And uh, But it, it, it was an incredibly fun, and challenging project.
0: It's an incredible read. It's an amazing book. It is. And it's out right now. Phil, the rip-roaring and unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar. The author is Alan Shipnook. He is a longtime golf writer. He's a partner at the Fire Pick Collective. Good friend of the program. My man, it's incredible. The book really is absolutely amazing. Glad we could run you down. Congrats on that. We'll do it again soon. And I know it's going to be a whirlwind for you. But great to have you back, Alan. Thank you so much. Well, It's always a pleasure talking to you, Jim. Thank you. Good night now!